0: All right, welcome back to another episode of Credal Catholic. Today I am joined by Father Josh Johnson. This episode has been a long time coming. Father Josh is a busy, busy man, but I'm grateful to him for making some time. So, Father Josh, welcome to Credal Catholic.
1: Thanks, Zach. It's good to be with you, brother.
0: Likewise, no, I'm so glad we could finally make this happen. I, when I first reached out to you a few months ago, it was through your website, and I wanted to talk to you about your new book, Pocket Guide to Adoration, uh, published by Ascension Press. And then. Uh, The death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, I should say, happened, uh, and Breonna Taylor, and several others, uh, Ahmed Arbery, and we're in this national moment where we're reckoning with questions of racial justice and systemic racism, and the church has a lot to say, or I should say, should have a lot to say, and I know you've been on the front lines of many of those conversations through your podcast and other other outlets, so I, I really am excited to have you on to help me kind of break down a lot of those questions, so welcome. Thanks, man. Uh, I'm going to read your bio here for our listeners so they get a little bit of a flavor about who you are. Um, and uh, I'll mention this in the bio, but Father Josh has a podcast uh, hosted by Ascension Press called Ask Father Josh, and I'll link to that in the show notes. It's a great resource for you to engage with more of his work and understand more about about his thinking and, and hear some great catechesis from, his, from him as well. Uh, Father Josh Johnson is the vocations director for the Diocese of Baton Rouge. So if you're in Baton Rouge and you're thinking about a vocation, get in touch. Uh, he's also the pastor of Holy Rosary Catholic Church. While Father Josh was raised Catholic, he didn't like the church growing up. But one day, in adoration of the Blessed Sacrament, he fell in love with Jesus and perceived the call to become a priest. He is a nationally recognized speaker, and he presents regularly on the topics of conversion, virtue, and vice, avoiding the near occasion of sin, growing in the spiritual life, and forming intentional disciples of Jesus Christ across the racial divide. So lots of uh, lots of easy topics there, right, Father Josh? <laughs> Yes, he's a presenter with Ascension Press on Alteration, the Mystery of the Mass, You, Life, Love, and the Theology of the Body, Rejoice, Advent Meditations with Mary, Rejoice, Advent Meditations with Joseph, No Greater Love, and The 99. He's also the author of Broken and Blessed, An Invitation to My Generation, Pocket Guide to Adoration, which we'll talk about today, and a contributing author of Power and Grace, A Guide to the Catholic Sacraments. You can keep in touch with Father Josh through his weekly podcast, as I mentioned, Ask Father Josh. Prior to his ordination to the priesthood, he attended Southern University and graduated from St. Joseph's Seminary College and Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. His greatest desire is to become a saint and form saints for the kingdom of God. What a bio, Father Josh. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. <laughs> so as I mentioned, uh, when I first got in touch with you several months ago, I wanted to talk about this adoration book that you wrote, uh, and then, and then we're, we now find ourselves in this amazing national moment, this moment of national reckoning uh, and church reckoning. So, so let's break those down. Maybe we'll start with the more pressing one. And when my listeners hear me say that they might think we're going to talk about race, but I think the more pressing issue is the Eucharist because it's the Eucharist yes. that, that unites us. So, uh, of
1: Assisi, he said to one of his brothers, one of the friars said, Francis, what's the greatest thing we could ever do for Jesus. And this is like Francis of Assisi who, who took care of the poor, who was an evangelist. So you would think he would say a million things, but the, the thing he said was the greatest thing we could ever do for Jesus is to spend time with him in the blessed sacrament. That's the greatest thing we could ever do. And so I always like to try to encourage people to prioritize time with Jesus Christ in the Eucharist because he will change us. The more we spend time with him, the more we'll begin to think like him, speak like him and act like him. And so, uh, yeah, that's the greatest, that's the most pressing issue. Um, Because right now too, Zach, um, one of the biggest issues is, is we're not making a place and a space for people of all nations to be in the presence of Jesus Christ in the blessed sacrament. And I propose that the more people that spend time before the Eucharist, the more transformation we're going to see in our society, the less people that spend time with Jesus in the blessed sacrament, the less, um, the less good we're going to see in our world. So it's it's very pressing that we emphasize the need to, um, prioritize this topic of Jesus Christ in the blessed sacrament.
0: That's beautifully stated. So is it fair to assume that that's why you wrote this pocket guide to adoration?
1: Yeah. I mean, I just, I love the, I love the Eucharist. I, um, I was away from the, from the church as the bio said, uh, for a number of years. And, um, and, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Brandy, she noticed that there were no black kids in youth group. There are no black kids, um, who were going to conferences, who were, who were really present at the table. And so she was a white girl who was very intentional with, with a few black kids that were in our, in our PSR program at our Catholic church. and And she invited me to a, a youth conference, Stupenville South, uh, in 2004. And I reluctantly went to this conference. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to be Catholic. and um, But I went to the conference, and it was at this conference that Bishop Sam Jacobs exposed Jesus Christ in Eucharistic adoration. Uh, and at that time, it was the only Steubenville in Louisiana. So, I mean, maybe it had—it was thousands of teenagers were there. And Bishop Sam Jacobs processed throughout the crowds around 8 o'clock p.m., on uh, June twenty six, two 2004, Saturday night in Alexandria, Louisiana, he processed through the crowds with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And he came face to face with me. And I did not believe that the Eucharist was really the body and blood of Jesus for many years. I thought it was just a symbol. Uh, and when he was right in front of me with the blessed sacrament, I fell to my knees and I was able to perceive by his grace that this was actually the, the, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Savior. And I, um, I asked the Lord uh, what is your um what's your plan for me because i recognized in christ like that he would be the one to fulfill me and that he was the one i was created for and so i just asked him, like what's your will for me uh, i like guess as, as a guy i guess we always think about doing before being in a relationship is like, all right what do you want me to do um and the first words i perceive from god in prayer and uh, eucharistic adoration where i love you um not i used to love you are uh, before we started li- i was living in mortal sin so not i used to love you before you lived in mortal sin or i'm gonna love you once you go to confession he saw me in my brokenness and my mess and my imperfections, And uh, he saw everything about me. He knew everything about me. And he still said, I love you. Uh, and so I knew from that moment, I wanted to be in a relationship with, with Christ in the Eucharist. And, um, and so I began to go to adoration on a daily basis after that, at one of our local adoration chapels in the Diocese of Baton Rouge. And I just fell more and more in love with God. So, um, so that's really why I wrote the book was because I, um, I knew about my experience and how the Eucharist has transformed my life. And I believe that the Eucharist can transform the church today if we emphasize him. But I also know that a lot of people struggle with going to adoration because they don't know what to do. You know, my first time at Steubenville in adoration, um, there was music being played. It was preceded by an awesome testimony by Paul George. There were thousands of people there. There was in, there was incense and um, there was the the flashy lights and uh, all, all the senses were being affected. And then when I started going to an adoration chapel to continue to cultivate my relationship with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament, um, it, I walked in and it was a small adoration chapel, very simple. There might have been two old ladies in there. Uh, it had a stench to it, uh, The terrible lighting, no incense, where were the teenagers, where was the music, and I didn't know what to do. Um, and so I, I know there's a lot of people also who go to conferences or retreats and have powerful encounters with Christ, but then following up with that, they don't know how to spend time with Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So I really wanted to give a guide to help people to um, discover ways that they could um, pray and be in relationship with Jesus in the Adoration Chapels or during Exposition of the Blessed Sacrament. So that more people would be drawn to Christ in the Eucharist, so that Christ in the Eucharist could form more saints for our our generation. Because, in my opinion, the greatest saints were all formed before the Blessed Sacrament. Mother Teresa spent hours before the Eucharist, and then from that time with the Blessed Sacrament, she did works of charity, um, as did Saint Damian Malachi, as did Saint Martin the Poor, as did Saint John Paul II, um, and at Father Augustus Tolton, Sister Thea Bowman, Mother Irene de the African-Americans are on the path to sainthood, they all had a specific um, uh, love for Jesus Christ in the Eucharist. And I, I believe that if we could get more people before him, then, then he would do everything else. We just have to get people there um, and get people to stay there. And uh, and so uh, that was kind of the, the goal of the book was to, to draw people to an intentional relationship with Christ in the Eucharist. Um, and then and then from that, hopefully so that we can see a lot of supernatural fruit in our world.
0: So let's back up a little bit and just talk about what Eucharistic adoration is. We went uh, on Corpus Christi Sunday, you know, several weeks ago, we went to, uh, I guess, several months ago at this point, we went to um, a Eucharistic Eucharistic procession. It was outdoors, it was about two miles long, it was beautiful, and it was hot, but there were so many people there from the parish, and, um, and, you know, there were seven different prayer stations as we went along, and we were processing in downtown uh, of the city in which we live, and it was beautiful. I mean, people driving by saw this procession and everything and I was describing this to a family member and I'm the only Catholic in my extended family. And the family member said that it sounded kind of cult like, right. And, uh, and obviously um, I mean, I guess in like the strictly etymological sense, I guess that's true. Right. But, but what, what he was saying is that it sounded like a, a pagan cult. Um, obviously it's not uh, there's, there's nothing more anti-pagan than the Eucharist, but from the outside looking in, so so maybe to a non-catholic listener right they hear us talk about a eucharistic procession about the host being processed around and people bowing to it and we're singing songs and there's incense and we're um, lifting up our prayers to god what what is eucharistic adoration fundamentally uh, and why why is it so important i mean how, how does how does our eucharistic theology as catholics inform our understanding of adoration
1: yeah so it goes back to the bible right in john chapter six jesus christ was speaking to his disciples and he was speaking to them about the, the bread um, in the Old Testament, uh, the manna that came down from heaven. Um, but the manna, that miraculous, what is the bread that came down from heaven that fed the Israelites, um, they still died after receiving it. Whereas he says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. He says, if you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have eternal life. At the last supper, Jesus Christ was speaking to his apostles and he says, this is my body when God speaks, something happens. And so uh, it literally becomes uh, the, the um, sacramental presence of the body of Christ. The Eucharist does. And, and many of his disciples in John chapter six, they didn't like that. Like They're like, we don't we don't believe this. This is a hard teaching. And many of his disciples walked away. They, they no longer followed him um, because of his teaching about um, being the Lamb of God, being the bread of life, um, being truly present um, in the blessed sacrament. Uh, St. Paul, who wasn't even at the Last Supper, he also writes about the Blessed Sacrament, the Eucharist, the the true presence of Jesus Christ um, uh, in in the New Testament as well. And so Jesus Christ really is like present, right, sacramentally present in the Eucharist. And so adoration is an extended time of prayer with Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. That's what St. John Paul II writes. He says it's pleasant to spend time with him, to lie close to the breast like the beloved disciple and, and to feel the infinite love present in his heart. Um, if in our time Christians must be distinguished above all uh, by the art of prayer, how can we not feel a renewed need to spend time in silent adoration and heartfelt love before Christ present in the Holy Sacrament? And so um, we as Catholics spend time looking at, at the Eucharist, adoring the Eucharist, because we believe that this is Jesus Christ and we want to give him our undivided face attention. Now, one of the benefits of Eucharistic adoration is it draws us to that which we've been created for, which is worship of God. Right? Eucharistic adoration is is tied to, to the mass. Um, It comes from the mass, but it also draws us back to the mass.
0: Yeah, that's great, Father. Thanks for all those references. Another thing that I think about as far as gazing on the, the face of Jesus, and that's something that you mentioned in your pocket guide quite a bit, right? Just gazing on the face of Jesus is this passage in Numbers 21, where these, these uh, poisonous serpents are among the Israelites and Moses puts the, is instructed by God to put a serpent on a pole and to hold it up. And that, that itself is kind of a, a, a type of the cross you know sort of anticipation of jesus on the cross but the the uh, the passage in numbers i think it's 21 9 says um all who looked on it lived uh, they were cured of their of their snake bites and i think that's a that's a really cool sort of anticipation of the eucharist and how we can we can gaze on the eucharist as it is there in our midst um so, so that's really cool
1: And also i mean think about the soldier who was at the foot of the cross yeah. in the in the presence of the body blood soul and divinity of jesus christ crucified as he was in the presence of God, just by being there, he was transformed. He was changed. It's like going to the beach. If you go out to the beach, you're going to be out in the sun all day. You're going to get a sunburn. You're going to be changed by the sun, by just going in the presence. And so when we just go in the presence of, of God and look at his face in the Eucharist, he changes us in ways that we can't even imagine. And so we, especially in a time like this, that we're living in with so much um, division in our in our church and division in our nation. Now is the time for us to immerse ourselves in the presence of Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity so that he can change us. And and we who are changed can go out and change the world. Uh, But we first have to be changed ourselves.
0: Oh, I love that. Uh, And as a fair skinned redhead, I know all about sunburns at the beach. So I'm all all too familiar with that. (laughs) Um, So I want to, I want to get to all the racial, the racial um, issues that we can talk about today. But maybe the final question on adoration. So, in your book, you you walk us through. I think you you say you know adoration with the scriptures, adoration with the rosary, adoration with the catechism, adoration with the lives of the saints. So, so four small chapters in this pocket guide, and it really is a pocket guide. I mean, it's it's small. You can fit it in your in your jean pocket. It's funny when people call something a pocket guide, and it's it's nowhere near pocket size. But this is actually pocket size. You can just throw it in your pocket and, and head to adoration. But you talk about those four different ways. Of sort of engaging with the faith. I love that you say adoration with the catechism because one of the ways that we can know that, that we can love God is to know God. And then reality is super important. Exactly. So I love that you call that out. But one thing I was going to ask you about, I mean, you you just described in your uh your studentville conference experience coming face to face with the body and blood of Jesus Christ and and almost hearing a locution. Now, I don't know if for you that was just an internal voice or an audible voice, but I've never had that experience, right? And so I I have a weekly holy hour at adoration and I go and I always hope like maybe maybe I'll hear a locution today. Maybe God will tell me something. But but, you know, and you mentioned this in the pocket guide as well. My experiences at adoration tend to be what I would call pretty spiritually dry. Right. And so so I'm not there. I don't have these like amazing moments of encounter. I bring spiritual reading with me. I, I pray the rosary. So I try to do these things right and I think those those efforts are valid and good and, and not, like none of the none of the dryness of my experience says anything about whether or not Christ is really there. And so I understand mm-hmm. that. But what about people like me who who just sort of struggle with this? Right. It, it doesn't it doesn't sort of I don't want to say come naturally, but it doesn't um, it doesn't. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know. We just don't get like an immediate impression of a divine encounter in adoration.
1: Yeah, I mean, we don't go there for that, right? We we don't enter into a relationship with God for the for the gifts of God. We enter into a relationship with God to be with Him, the person, the person Jesus Christ. And so, um, again, one of the main points I try to make throughout the book is ways that we can remain attentive to His face while we're in prayer so that we don't give in to the distractions, so that don't give into the discouragement of I'm not having a supernatural experience as other people might be um, feeling or perceiving um, in their prayer. And so it's just important that what we bring with us when we go to uh, adoration, things like the Bible, right? The word of God, the voice of God, uh, because anytime we read scripture, we actually hear the voice of God speak to us. And so if anyone ever tells me I've never heard God speak to me and they've been to mass, I tell them they're a liar.
0: That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah. Thank you for that.
1: His word is a living word. And so I just invite people to look at his face in the Eucharist and to hear his voice in the scriptures, to hear his voice in the church's teaching, because he is very much present in his church. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think that we all we all experience seasons of, of dryness. Um, and, and if that's where we're at, that might be what we need right now. Um, but the goal is to just be with Jesus on his terms, not on our terms. Authentic love never forces the, the beloved to to do what we want. It's always about receiving the gift as the gift is being given. And uh, and yeah, so I just I encourage people to just to go and uh, and to get to get the pocket guide to help you to remain attentive to his face, to help you to to learn how to avoid some distractions that may come and to remain attentive to that relationship. You know, St. Teresa of Avila always emphasized in her writings that in order for our prayer to be authentic, we need to know who we're talking to and what we're talking about. Um, And so she gives us a lot of tools and methods that can help us to remain attentive to the face and the voice of Jesus and to remain in his presence when we're like to actually be present um to god when we're in his presence <laughs> because sometimes we can go to adoration and we're like we're, we're physically present but we're not present there in our heart and our mind um and so she gives us a lot of wisdom on how we can remain attentive to that relationship and uh and yeah again we, we go there and we go there for him not for us but the fruit is that there would be good things that happen to us if we go there um and so we, we need to do that in our walk toward eternity
0: that's beautiful, and I love that you mentioned Saint Teresa of Avila. She's one of my favorites. Um, a couple of weeks on the podcast, we uh, we talked about. I, I had Simone rascala on from Endow Groups, and we talked about Saint Edith Stein, who whose oh. whose conversion experience was driven by reading Saint Teresa of Avila's autobiography. And, and when Saint Edith Stein entered the Discalced Carmelite Order, she took the name Saint Teresa Benedicta after Saint Teresa of Avila. Um, and actually, we're doing we're doing another episode on Saint Teresa of Avila uh, pretty soon too. So.
1: So cool thing about St. Teresa of Avila, a lot of people don't know. Um, So whenever she founded the Discalced Carmelites, um, one of the things that she did was she changed the policy. Um, And so um, there was an unjust policy in the Carmelite order at that time in Spain uh, that said that uh, women who had Jewish blood or Moorish blood could not enter the Carmelite community. And as you probably know, historically, like she had Jewish blood. They didn't know that, but she knew that. And so whenever she founded the Discalced Carmelites, the sandal-wearing Carmelites, she also uh, changed the policy and said, any woman who comes from any bloodline can enter into my community, whether it's Jewish or Moorish or Catholic or whatever. And why that's important, especially for our topic on racial justice, is because Mother Henri DeLille, the founders of the Holy Family Sisters in New Orleans, one of the first um, black communities of religious sisters, for years she tried to... Co-found, first, she tried to join religious orders. She tried to join the Carmelites in America, the Ursulines, and a number of other sisters, white orders. They all said no because she had black blood. And then she tried to co-found religious orders with other white women, other white Catholics. And again, because the, the leadership of the church, um, many of them were racist, um, they denied her access to, to founding an order with other white women. So then she founded an order for Black women, by Black women, um, and she, she professed her vows on the feast day of St. Teresa of Avila, specifically because St. Teresa of Avila had this policy that any woman could join my order. And so for Amir de DeLille, any woman could join her order. So mainly Black women joined at that time, like the church only allowed Black women to join, but it was for all women, like Teresa of Avila's order.
0: That is super cool. And what a great way to transition to our second topic for today, racial justice. So you said a couple things there that I think are worth unpacking and are really good to recognize, right? You, you said that leaders of the church in America at that time, many of whom were racist. And I think yes. that's, that's a good reality check, right? Because we often want to put our, put our clerics on pedestals, or we want to say that the church is not like the culture. The church has right. always stood alone and been different, but What I hear you saying is that, no, the church has definitely been racist. And then
1: then, Judas is in the church, my brother. Judas has always been a part of the leadership.
0: (laughs) Exactly. And I think it's super important to recognize because then, of course, the follow on. Right. Is is, as as a Catholic today, I think you'd be tempted to say, well, that was then that was in the 19th century. But but this is now and now we've solved this. Right. So uh, but I, I think. That's that's a that's a leap of logic that isn't warranted by the facts, right? So, in what ways do you see racism still persisting? You're a you're a black man, you're a black priest who has been through seminary and has encountered, you know, has spoken publicly throughout the church, has encountered a lot of clerics and worked with a lot of bishops. In what ways do you see racism working itself out or playing out in the church today?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's important that we um, have clear definitions when we're talking about the topic of racism um, because uh, definitions matter, and so. Um, I, I, I like to focus on institutional racism uh, because I think that a lot of people struggle with that word. Um, we get caught up in our little, um, our little holy hoes of, of people who look like us and think like us and act like us. And so we don't listen well. So I first encourage people, please fast. Fast from, um, from um, speaking, um, fast from whatever you've been taught and, and then to try to be open to, to learning something new. Um, so institutional racism really is, is rooted in those practices which are unwritten rules um, and policies, which are written rules that accommodate um, and give access to white people for no other reason than because they're white. Um, and it discriminates against and um, alienates uh, black people for no other reason than because of the color of our skin, black and brown people, because of the color of our skin. Um, and so uh, this is really how how uh, the, the division between races is perpetuated today, right? Um, racial prejudice. Anyone could be racially prejudiced. Anyone could. Um, anyone can have racial discriminations. Um, but, but institutional racism, and, and again, anyone can support institutional racism, but it, it typically benefits um, white people, um, and it hurts black people. Uh, this is what this country was really founded on during slavery. It was a policy. It was a, a rule, a written rule. Slavery was the law of the land, a written rule. Um, after after slavery ended, um, then we had, during the years of Reconstruction, we had a number of other rules, laws that were put in place that continued to um, uh, criminalize black people um, and oppress black people. And then after that, the Jim Crow laws were put into effect, which lasted until the 1960s, which is not that long ago after the Civil Rights Act. I think a lot of people live in a dream world where they think, well, once the Civil Rights Act happened, then everyone came together and started singing Kumbaya. And every Catholic all of a sudden like changed and had this transformation, this metanoia experience. And we're like, we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ in every way possible. Including with the racial divide, but but we know this is not true. Even with other things like whenever um, Pope Paul VI released Humana Vitae um, many years ago, uh, that came from the Church. It was the Church teaching. And how did the American Catholic Church at large receive Humana Vitae? A- in general, the American Catholic Church was like, we know what the Church is saying. We disagree with that. We're not going to listen to that. Um, and in reality, that's really how the American Catholic Church. Um, has responded um, to the church's teachings um, on, on racism for, for years. So now the Rights Act happens and, and the people in leadership, many of them are still racially prejudiced and they still um, want to have discrimination as the law of the land. So what many leaders began to do was focus on institutional racism, again, through practices and policies. And by pushing these practices, they could get away with them because they'll say, well, there's no rule that says this. This is just how things happen to go here. Um, And then policies are written rules that typically are written in such a way that you have to, like, look really clearly, like take a hard look at to see how it's accommodating white people and hurting black people. Uh, This was in the news recently. This is a case here in um, the Diocese of Baton Rouge. Here in Louisiana, about 30 minutes from my parish at a, at a church I was assigned to a number of years ago, um, in this this town of Asheville, Louisiana, there is a swimming pool um, that is still segregated. Uh, and the swimming pool it has members, the, the members, uh, the, the founders of them, uh, many of them were Catholics from this parish, um, and, and they founded it to have an exclusive swimming pool okay so this is the year 2020 2020 and we still have a swimming pool that is segregated by practice so anyone can apply for membership but only white people are allowed to be members um any black person can apply to be put on the list but for the entire history of this pool they've only accepted white members and they've always said there's no policy that says there's no written rule anymore that says black people can't join it's just, it's the practice, and that's how they've gotten away with it. Now, in the past, I guess, month or so, um, this has gone viral because uh, someone from the media picked up this story that I've been speaking about for years, um, and someone has picked it up, and now it's gone viral, and so there's a lot of attention being focused on the swimming pool, um, urging the, the people to, to change this practice. The pastor of the parish, um, years ago, um, he, after listening to black people in his parish, found out about this pool and found out about its uh, practice that it was um, enforcing and he began to speak out against it he began to preach against it um, and and he went from being a very popular pastor priest in his community um, to to being disliked by many people because he spoke about something that made them uncomfortable because he was challenging them to be disciples of Jesus Christ and to and to not be compartmentalized Catholics who who are cafeteria Catholics who would pick and choose what they believe. And there'll be there'll be disciples on Sundays. But then the rest of the week, they wouldn't allow their faith to impact their society. Um, So that's 2020. That's a racist practice that still exists. Um, It accommodates white people and alienates black people. In the early 2000s, my one of my great spiritual mentors, Archbishop uh, Hughes, Alfred Hughes, he was the Bishop of Baton Rouge for many years, then became the Archbishop of New Orleans. Uh, he, as Archbishop of New Orleans, recognized a lot of black Catholics leaving the church. And again, he did what Father Michael did um, at his church in Vashery. He invited the black Catholics in the Archdiocese of New Orleans to come and to share their stories with him. He began to listen to them, to hear their perspective, something that he wasn't aware of as an old white man. And so he began to hear their stories of why they were leaving the church. And he began to hear a consistent story that many of them had been active in their parishes for many years. Faithful Catholics, faithful disciples of Jesus Christ, faithful to the Eucharist. But they were leaving their churches because their pastors and their um, their groups in their parishes were hosting events at the uh, Metairie Country Club, which at that time had the same practice that the swimming pool still has, which is whites only. And the way they got away with it was there was no rule that said that but it was the practice anybody can apply. They happened to only accept um, only white people throughout their entire history. And so whenever he found out that these parishes, these institutions and these Catholic organizations were hosting events at the Metairie Country Club where black people could not be members, he wrote, first he reached out to them and asked them to change their practice. And then he wrote a pastoral letter that was disseminated throughout the entire archdiocese and it informed the Catholics in his diocese that no Catholic institution, church, hospital, school, organization, parish or group can host any events at any clubs that do not allow diverse membership well what that did was that uh, affected the money at the country club and so a lot of the catholics began to pull out because they recognized what was happening many of them weren't even aware of this practice they just thought that this is just how things are Um, and so they pulled out of the country club and the metairie country club has now since changed that practice and they now have black members they actually Invite, they're intentional about inviting Black people to join their country club. Now, because of the way that the church and the leadership of the church spoke out against this institutional practice, and then finally, a policy that's in many schools across our nation, um, that a lot of times is not intentional. Um, they, they, the people that write these policies don't mean to be intentional, uh, intentionally uh, racist when they write them. And when I say that again, I mean and that they accommodate white people and discriminate against Black people and their rules. Um, but Because they don't sit at the table with diverse groups of people, they sometimes make decisions that hurt members of the body of Christ or people that could become members of the body of Christ through Catholic education. And so in a number of our Catholic schools, there's obviously a handbook policy, which we should all have policy guys that that say these are the rules of our school. Um, But some of the Catholic schools throughout our nation have a policy that says that no one could wear braids. Well, this affects black girls, right? Because black girls, that's what they wear. And it, its they wear it in Africa. They wear it in Haiti. They wear it in America. They wear it all over the world. Um, and so basically the, the rule is saying if you wear braids, you will be suspended or eventually kicked out. Um, and so you have to perm your hair to look European, because that's the standard of our school is the European hair. Um, and so uh, that can damage a black girl's hair to perm her hair, or you can wear a fro. Um, you can wear a fro. Some girls don't want to wear a fro. Um, and so uh, at one of the high schools in my in my diocese, uh, the principal, Dr. Ellen Lee, was very proactive. And when she became principal, she also noticed that there were not that there were some black students, but not, not a lot, and that the black students that came didn't graduate. A lot of them left. And so she began to invite black students and their parents to the table to ask them, what's going on? Like, you know, I want black students at my school. I want them to be in the presence of the Eucharist. She herself is a disciple of Jesus Christ. She knows that like, she has a, a beautiful adoration chapel at her school. So she's like a, a good disciple of Christ. And she's like, I want like people of all nations to be at my school. And, uh, and they began to tell her, well, the reason why a lot of people are leaving is because we don't feel safe here because— of this policy in your handbook. Now, she as a white woman never even noticed that policy. She read the policy when she became principal and she never noticed it until she invited them to sit at the table. And when she heard them tell her this, she um, invited them to help her to rewrite the policy to be accommodating to black and brown students so that they would not be discriminated against unintentionally um, by the rules of this this school. And so, um, and and there are many others. There are fraternities that have the same practice still today. Um, here in Louisiana, um, at LSU, I know there's some in Alabama that have the same um, practices. Um, there are Mardi Gras balls across our nation. And there, are some, I mean, there are so many um, practices out there um, that continue to foster division in the body of Christ. And so it's important that Catholics become aware of this so that we can, like Father Michael Maselli and like Dr. Ellen Lee and like Archbishop Alfred Hughes, we can be used by God to address these practices and these these policies and foster unity in the body of Christ And be a bridge for people of all nations to come in the presence of Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament. Um, And if we don't do this, then there will be a number of people in the world who will never see Jesus in the Eucharist and may never be transformed by Jesus in the Eucharist to be the disciples that he wants them to be and that he longs for them to be with us who are currently present in relationship with him in the Blessed Sacrament.
0: There's a couple of things in those stories that you relay that I think are worth teasing out or just talking about a little bit more. One of them is is the willingness to listen, right? This high school principal who sounds like a wonderful woman, this bishop who reached out to Black Catholics and said, "Why are you leaving the church?" I mean, this this uh, impulse that is not to not, not first to speak, but first to listen, right?
1: Biblical, right?
0: Yeah, exactly. And so I, I really like that. The other thing that that makes me think about is just the, the difference that one person's leadership can make right, in executing or, or implementing change uh, across a broad array of society, um, like this bishop who ended up changing policies of country clubs because he wrote a pastoral letter and was very intentional about doing that. But it also makes me wonder, I mean, I guess I have, I have two things that I'm thinking about, right? One, what if every Catholic layperson and every priest and cleric was that intentional about confronting racism wherever it exists, right?
1: What if brother, could you imagine like we at the Lord, the church is the solution. Like like Dr. MLK said that he said, um, he said that the problem with our, with our society um, are the problems in America right now are not a societal problem. They're a church problem because the church, the people, the members of the body of Christ who have been given grace from God who have charisms by virtue of our baptism, supernatural gifts that we can use in collaboration with each other. Imagine what would happen if we would all work together to say like, no more, we want, what I often hear from Catholics is, is I, I, I'm just gonna love people. That, that, that's what my response to be. And I'm like, that's great. That's what we should do. Thomas Aquinas, though defines love as willing the good of the other. So when you say I'm just gonna love people, how are you willing the good of people of color? By just being nice, by just being kind? Well, a nice person and a kind person, you're supposed to be that. Like that's like objectively true, what we're supposed to do. That's foundational. But by being nice and kind, that's not going to also stop current practices and policies and, and transform things that are, are, are still fostering division. So like we need you to be nice and kind and patient like First Corinthians 13, four seven. We need that. But we also need you to say, but I'm also not going to tolerate evil. That is currently present in our society. And I'm gonna work with you to eradicate this evil, to bring about a civilization of love, which might make me uncomfortable by doing that, which might get me hate mail. Like I've received so much hate mail. Like whenever I speak out against abortion, oh my gosh, I get, you know, so much love from so many people in the Catholic Church. Like, oh, thank you so much, Father Josh, for, for for speaking for life and for speaking for babies and their mothers and whatever. When I speak about Natural Family Planning or Creighton. I get so much love from people. The second I bring up a, a racism or, or the need for for um, for reparation, right? Uh, biblical reparation. I mean not uh, in others, but like biblical reparation, scriptural reparation. Whenever I talk about reformation, people are like, well, stop, 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 Father Josh, you're you you're, you're too. This this too much. It's too radical. I'm like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Like like no, I need you to listen because God is inviting us to do what like to literally transform our world um, through, but so many people don't want that because it makes us uncomfortable, you know? Um, in the, in the uh, during segregation, uh, Archbishop uh, Rummel, um, he was he was also proactive and, and he began to integrate Catholic schools. And whenever he began to speak about integrating Catholic schools in the Archdiocese of New Orleans, um, he received a lot of pushback from Catholic lay people, from Catholic priests, and from Catholic religious, um, including the KKK, who burned crosses in front of his residence, who boycotted him, who protested against him for trying to give black students the same access to education as the white students in his archdiocese. And so very few, so what happened was, is some of the Catholic schools in the archdiocese began to integrate by saying, okay, we'll accept like a few token black students. Like we'll get like three or four or five black students total. And that's how we are, being respectful and obedient to our archbishop who's saying, I want to integrate our schools. But the St. Joseph sisters in New Orleans, their school, St. Joseph's Academy for New Orleans, said, you know what? We're going to open wide the doors of our of our school to, to all people of color. We're not going to put a limit on it. And when they did this, they were protested against. They were spoken out against. They were called communists by Catholics um, in, in public, on radio. Uh, they were persecuted for doing this. And little by little, um, what happened was is, the white students who went to their school were pulled out of their school and sent to the other Catholic schools who would only accept a few black students because the parents were, it was white flight. They didn't want their students being friends with black students. They didn't want their students, their, their kids dating black kids, um, potentially. And so they pulled their kids out and within a few years, the school had to shut down because all, because the majority of their white students just left. And so, um, and if you look at Catholic schools today, what, what do they look like? What, what are they made up of? Um, and so I think that we even when we address this, it has to say, okay, where is it at today? Like, like what's the history of this particular Catholic school? Um, and, and why is it so so white? Why isn't it more diverse? Why doesn't this Catholic school look like heaven? You know, when we look at heaven, John talks about heaven um, in the book of Revelation. He says, I see people of every race, nation, and tongue. Okay, so does my school look like people of every race, nation, and tongue? Um, whenever every race nation, and tongue is represented in my diocese, does my parish have people of every race nation, and tongue? Does my Bible study have people of every race nation, and tongue? Um, and if it doesn't, then I think that we need to take a step back and say, am I really, am I really building God's kingdom at my school and in my church and my small group Bible study or am I building my kingdom? Um, but anyways, I could talk about this for for days.
0: No, I mean, I I love that you mentioned what the kingdom of God looks like. Uh, I'm not sure if you are a fan of the fiction of Flannery O'Connor at all. Um
1: I yeah I've read some of her work yeah.
0: So I'm a huge fan, my wife is as well. Uh a couple of weeks ago on our other podcast Vernacular, my wife and I talked with a Flannery O'Connor scholar and one of the things that we talked about was this short story that she has um in which a lady named Mrs. Turpin is a racist and doesn't even realize it, right? She's pretty she's pretty satisfied in her own righteousness. Um but then she gets hit You know full on literally hit in the face with a book and that's symbolic of sort of grace colliding with her and it puts her in a in an almost catatonic state she can't quite wrestle with it but as she sort of comes to um, she looks to heaven and she sees a vision and the vision in accordance with the last shall be first has black people marching to heaven ahead of the white people right. Um, mm-hmm. and it, it is super cool because it's in that moment where the the grace that collided with her helped her realize what the mm-hmm. kingdom of God does look like, and helped her overcome her her own racial prejudices in that way. And,
1: and I think that there, most people in our, in America today probably aren't racially um, prejudiced to, to large degrees, and they probably don't actively, intentionally racially discriminate. The problem is, is a lot of people um, are okay with there being institutions that continue. perpetuate you know the divide and so when we have transformed hearts when we have renewed minds um, that are um, that are um, transformed by Christ through the time we spend with Jesus and the sacraments and the scripture then we're invited by God to address these these practices and these policies and if we don't address these practices and these policies then they will continue to perpetuate the vision and so that's why it's really important for us as disciples of Jesus to like acknowledge it. Look, I've made, there's some white people who've never said the N word. They've, they've never even participated in an institution that was discriminatory in their practices or policies. Uh, they've never walked on the other side of the robe and a black person was walking or clutched their purse or whatever. Like they've never done any of that stuff. Um, but the goal is to say, but like, we're also called to, to intentionally do stuff for the kingdom of God as well. Just because I'm not doing some things I'm still called to be proactive um, and be aware by listening to other people's stories and finding out things that I don't know so that I can be used by God to transform these broken institutions so that they won't continue to, to break the heart of Jesus, um, and foster division and that, that, that this unity is a work of Satan. And so we we need to be proactive, um, and, and ask God how we can be used to rewrite, um, rewrite these rules that, that continue to foster unnecessary division of of Jesus.
0: I think father, I would push back a little bit on your claim that most people aren't racist. And, and I, I say that in this way, right? I, t- I totally take your point that there are a lot of people who don't like actively foster conscious sentiments against people of color. Right. Uh, I take your point that a lot of people have never uttered the N word, et cetera, have never you know knowingly participated in an institution, but racism is a sin and like all sins, we deal with them constantly in our hearts and the devil is constantly trying to get us to fall into them. And so, you know, um, just like, just like any other sin, right? Uh, dishonesty or lust. I mean, all of us to some degree have struggled with those things. Uh, and probably with some, with some rare exceptions, right? You might find a person who just by the grace of God has never dealt with a lustful thought once in their entire life, but for most people like they have. Right. And, and so in the same way, I think Racism is a sin, and we are constantly tempted to it by the devil, and our heart inclines toward it. And the reason why that matters, right? I'm not. I'm not saying that everyone's a racist.
1: I think that's what definitions are important. I think that we need to be clear that, like, yeah, everyone can have racially prejudiced thoughts, right? And 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 everyone can racially discriminate at times in life from their kids or whatever. But um, but I think that the power that racism has is is really only in the institutions. Like you can call me the N-word. I've been called word on you know um, by people in and in, in messages and whatever that doesn't affect me at all like that's not gonna affect me in any way shape or form you are being you know, prejudiced against me that's really like personally that's not gonna affect me but the institution is where it's important at because the, the, that's where the power is that it's in the practices and the policies have the power to to actually oppress me um and to hurt me and people who look like me um whereas you you being a racially prejudiced white person, or or me being a racially prejudiced black person, that that could be changed through prayer um, over time. That could be changed by
0: sacramental grace. Right. I mean, um, and that's a good point, right? Because the Holy Spirit changes hearts.
1: Yeah, and so the more we're immersed in in time with the Lord and Scripture and the sacraments, I find that people have conversions and 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 they 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 recognize, oh, I was prejudiced here, and they repent. Go to confession, and many of them they move on, um, but many people don't actually address practices and policies like they're they are so fine with them existing. They're so because because it doesn't affect them. Many people won't a- intentionally like w- address where there needs to be reform in healthcare or in education or in law enforcement because it doesn't affect them in a negative way. They won't address where the prison system is unjust and, and racially discriminatory. Um, and, and, and they won't address it because it doesn't affect them. Um, they so, yeah, So I think that that's why I like to focus more on the institution and less on you know, like, cause I, I feel like most people that I walk with at some point or another, they recognize, oh, I, yeah, at one point it was this way with my, my feelings, my thoughts. So right. I, I won't really do this, but now because of my, my involvement in the sacraments and in the church, I've been healed of that, but they still don't want to take the next step, which is to address things that perpetuate division, um, which really is the institutions.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. The reason I mentioned why the, why I think that, you know, um, it was. It was actually in that interview with that we did with the uh, Flannery O'Connor scholar. She mentioned that line from Avenue Q that says everyone's a little bit racist. The reason why I think that matters, right, is because how do we how do we enable the action of the Holy Spirit in our hearts? It's by grace working through love, and and you know one of the ways that we can work is try to actually actively stand up for those in Mm -hmm. our midst who are discriminated against, like you're saying to actively make sure that those people who are marginalized have a voice and are no longer marginalized to make sure that the institutions that have been erected or constructed around policies that do systematically disadvantage certain groups of people don't do that anymore. Right. I mean, those are the ways that we can, we can, um, work through grace, um, enable the Holy spirit in us to also change us.
1: There's like a difference between being not racist and being anti-racist. Because um, if you're not racist, that's cool. Right? That's great. But like, are you anti-racist? Are you just like, I'm anti-abortion. Are you going to be anti-racist? Are you going to actually pray and fast for healing in our community? Are you going to intentionally um, boycott um, conference uh, a, a conference that will host a speaker who is racially prejudiced and does, like and years uh, not years ago, last year, Uh, my diocese uh, was going to send a group of our young adult youth to a conference uh, that we've supported for years. Uh, And we sent about 500 kids to this conference. and, And we had become aware that one of the keynote speakers at this conference was a a, a good speaker um, who has a powerful story, but this this speaker had, um, in the months leading up to the conference, uh, before the conference, had said some pretty terrible things, racial slurs on on social media, um, that were very harmful to the body of Christ and hurtful. And so, our our diocese reached out to this conference, and we just um, we informed them that we did not feel comfortable with our students attending a conference that was going to have a keynote speaker who had said terrible racial slurs on social media and acknowledged that they were not going to take back whenever they were invited to repent, they were invited to have an opportunity to apologize and make things right. The speaker said, I'm not going to do that. And so uh, we uh, said, basically, here's, your, here's what we're going to do. Either either we're going to pull out and not come to this conference because we don't want to expose our kids to that because our, our kids are coming from all different nations, all different backgrounds, all different races, um, or you can you can change the speaker, the keynote speaker. And you can, again, encourage that person more to, like, repent and to, to, to talk to, even we even reached out and said, we will speak with this person personally and spend time with this person to help them see, like, why what they're saying is very dangerous to the body of Christ. Um, but, um, if you don't change your speaker, that we're not coming to the conference, which would have affected them, you know, significantly financially. And so, um, because of our potential. Boycott of the conference, uh, they changed speakers, and our kids were able to go and have a phenomenal time and encounter Jesus Christ and grow in their relationship with the church. Um, But even in that, like it's it's we've got to begin to say like like what am I going to do to be anti-racist? Like how am I going to to not just not be racist myself? Like which again, like God can transform our hearts and our minds through time we spend with scriptures and the Blessed Sacrament and we're living a sacramental life. Like grace transforms us, Um, but. He's inviting us to then go out and and actually make changes in the world, to let let people in our church leadership know that we're not going to stand for things that are going to continue to become barriers for all people to become saints. Saints are formed in the sacraments. And so we've got to be intentional um, anti-racist in our churches and in our parishes and in our schools and in our chanceries um, so that we're drawing people to Christ. In my own chancery at the Diocese of Baton Rouge... Uh, For years, there was a painting um, uh, right down in in the chancery where people come for annulments, where people come for all the all the meetings happen right there. There's this huge, huge painting uh, of a priest, a Catholic priest, uh, historical priest from my diocese, um, who um, was a racist. Um, He owned slaves, um, and it was him blessing the rebel flag. It was the priest blessing the rebel flag and being arrested after they lost the war. and it's this huge painting, like like that every time I went to the Catholic Life Center, I would see it and and there was no story behind it telling his story about how he was a historical priest and owned slaves and 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 was forced slavery and all that stuff or whatever. it was just this beautiful big painting of a priest blessing a rebel flag. Um, and so uh, whenever Alton Sterling was, was shot a number of years ago, my bishop invited me to the table with him. And he asked me to specifically work as the co-chair for our commission on racial harmony to, to build bridges in our diocese. And, and the first thing I said was Well Bishop, like, like the, we, we can't begin to do work out in our diocese until we, we, Put that painting in a museum or in the archives and tell the real story of that painting. But you got to keep it out of the chancery because I can tell you, as a black person, every time I've come here, seeing a black priest bless the rubber flag, like that has, like, it's, it's hurtful to see that. And I, I, I can tell you the black people who work here, um, who I've spoken with, they're also offended by by that painting. And so the bishop listened to me. He put that painting in archives where we now use it as a teaching tool about the history of, the, of our land. And we've replaced that painting with um, the six African-Americans um, portraits who are on the path to becoming saints, the servant of God's and the Venerables, Augustus Tolton, Henriette de um, Pierre Toussaint, Julia Greeley, Sophia Bowman, Mother Mary Lange. We have a beautiful image of the Black Madonna with the child Jesus there. And so um, now when people go, they see something beautiful, especially when people of color go to the diocese. They see something even in the artwork that's a bridge for them to want to stay there and not something that's like, we see that and we're just we're like, I don't feel like I belong here, right? <laughs> um, and so we've got to not just say like, I'm personally not racist, but what am I doing to be anti-racist in the church so that I can be a bridge for people to come and abide with Jesus in the sacramental life of the church that He founded 2,000 years ago? And if we're not being intentional about that, um, then, then we're part of the problem, not the solution
0: that's a great call to action father um maybe as a final question here I'll ask you uh following that call to action what is a what is one of your favorite saints that we can perhaps rely on for the uh, uh in terms of intercession in helping to bridge these racial divides
1: well there's there's so many um uh, <laughs> and so i I'll, can I give you a few because I can't ever just like pick one yeah please um, do one is St. John Paul II, uh, St. John Paul II, St. John Paul the Great. When he came here to America, um, he uh, specifically spoke out against racism, um, both in the 1980s when he visits in New Orleans and also in the 1990s. Um, he spoke out both times against um, racism here in our country. Um, and, and it was funny whenever, not funny, it was, it was actually it was terrible. Whenever he was speaking out against racism, um, a, a very prominent news station, a Catholic news station was covering his visit. And one of the commentators on that news station said after he spoke out against racism, how that is still a problem in America. The commentator um, on this Catholic network said it's, it's, it's really a shame that that his people are lying to him and, and missing, he's so misinformed because racism is not it's not an issue here in America anymore. Um, so totally just like acting like what he said wasn't um, wasn't true. I'm guessing this uh, so- commentator
0: was an affluent white person. <laughs>
1: Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was, uh, and so, and he was Catholic, and he was Catholic, right? He was somebody who has a voice in the church, and his voice was—it was a dangerous voice because of that, because he just denied to all the people who who tune into the station that it is actually a problem. He encouraged people to believe that Pope John Paul II, Saint John Paul the Great, was misinformed, ill-informed, um, and what he was talking about, um, because again, he may have never experienced being racially profiled. He may have never experienced being pulled over while driving, um, and an all-white neighborhood, right? He may have never been denied entry into a club or an institution or been denied access to moving into a certain neighborhood because of the color of his skin. He may have never um, experienced a, a prison sentence that was outrageous compared to everyone else um, at his, in his community because of the color of his skin for the same crimes that they may have committed, right? So he may have never experienced that. And so again, for him, it was an issue, um, but that's what happens whenever we live in our little holy huddles, our little bubbles, and we don't go out and dwell with everybody in our community. Um, So, St. John Paul II is certainly one. uh, The six African Americans on the path to sainthood here in America um, are others that I rely on daily. um, Again, Sister Thea Bowman, uh, Mother Henriette DeLille, Father Augustus Tolton, Pierre Toussaint, and Julia Greeley, Mother Mary Lange. Uh, Those are individuals who I daily lean on um, because they all experienced, they all experienced racism and institutional racism. Each and every single one of them experienced it. Um, but uh, they also were able to uh, persevere in their relationship with Christ in the sacraments and collaborate with other members of the body of Christ, including white Catholics, who they collaborated with on a daily basis to not only help them become saints, but to form saints in their communities, to form disciples of Jesus Christ. And so um, they really were in their life, um, uh, bridges for the racial divide um and then saint catherine drexel is just another great saint her and saint martin of Porres, but saint catherine drexel here in america she um not only prayed and fasted um um and, and and she had her own stuff that she had to deal with like she wasn't perfect um she had her own but like she over time she was purified over time um she was renewed and restored in her mind and her heart uh but she also did a lot to um to address, like she, she, she financially supported the NAACP. She financially supported religious um, orders like the Josephites and the Holy Family Sisters that serve predominantly black and brown communities. So she put her money where her mouth was. And so I like to encourage people to imitate her because not only did she spend hours before the Blessed Sacrament in prayer, which she did, uh, but she also was super intentional about putting her money where her mouth was. And I think even something that a lot of white Catholics could do this like very basic in addition to like purchasing diverse artwork so that all people can feel welcome in our churches in our schools and our chanceries, um, in addition to, to praying and fasting um, for the end of racism in our nation, which is a, it's a demonic stronghold in our nation to like really pray and fast to, to combat this demon through holy hours and masses, but to also, um, to financially support, use your money, pull your money from conferences and from institutions and clubs and organizations that don't allow diverse membership, and financially support institutions and organizations and religious orders um, that do um try to to foster um disciples of Jesus Christ in the Blessed Sacrament um through through their ministry, like Vagabond missions here in America, like the Holy Family Sisters, like our black and brown Catholic schools in parishes which are typically underfunded and under-resourced instead of spending like thousands upon thousands of dollars just going to a, a mission in Africa or in Haiti or in Jamaica, which we should do that too. It's the Catholic both end approach um, and then ignore the black people in our own communities um, and the brown people in our communities. Use that money to actually support and tie to those churches and those schools and those religious orders um, and organizations that are intentionally trying to serve um, black and brown people and assist them and accompany them in their walk toward eternity and their discipleship and their journey to becoming saints. So there's just a number of things that we can do and wisdom that we can learn from the saints on how they did, um, foster healing and unity, um, where the devil has perpetuated the vision in the body of Jesus Christ in the Catholic church of America.
0: Well, thanks father. That's a great note to end on. I want to thank you for your time today and for spending some, uh, some words talking about both Eucharistic adoration and racial divides in the church. And to our listeners, I want, I hope you take uh, father Josh's words to heart here. Um, it's, it's been a great learning experience for me to learn from, uh, a uh, a priest and a fellow black catholic about his experience in the church but perhaps even more importantly the experience that he's he's seen from brothers and sisters um who who have stories that we don't often hear enough um and with respect to these six um african-americans who are on the path to sainthood i'm going to include uh some links in the show notes about each of them so that you can you can study and learn a little bit more because i think it's two men four women they're all they're all amazing people who have incredible stories um as you'd expect from someone on the path to sainthood but they're stories that we should be <laughs> familiar with as we uh, as we seek to understand our black brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church um, in America and and around the world. So thanks so much, Father, for your time. I hope we can stay in touch and thanks for your continued dedication to the gospel, your mission to spreading uh, the love of Jesus Christ and helping people get in front of the Eucharist and recognize where we can help each other, the body of Christ, uh, in our own nation. So thanks so much.
1: Awesome, thank you so much, Zach, God bless.
0: For our listeners, if you want to get in touch with Father Josh, um, you can do that. Ask Father Josh. Is that right? Ask Father Josh yep. at, at Ascension I think. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, I'll link to his uh, his podcast, uh, Ask Father Josh, which I encourage you to listen to. Lots of good information there. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, let me know what I missed or what I can do better. Zach, Z A C, at Catholic.com. And until next time, God bless you.